the Film Society of Lincoln Center, you're listening to The Close-Up. This week we're sharing two highlights from last month's series, The Female Gaze, which showcased work from some of the best female cinematographers working today. The Miseducation of Cameron Post is a timely coming-of-age story starring Chloe Grace Moretz as a teenager sent to a gay conversion camp. It is the second film from director Desiree Akavan and was photographed by Ashley Connor, who joined us for a Q&A after our sneak preview screening. The film is now playing in theaters. I Think We're Alone Now is an idiosyncratic drama from director-slash-cinematographer Reed Murano, starring Peter Dinklage and Elle Fanning as the last people on Earth. The film won the special jury prize at the 2018 Sundance Film Festival, and it opens in theaters in September. Reed Murano joined us for a Q&A after a sneak preview screening during The Female Gaze. Let's go now to that conversation, followed by our Q&A with cinematographer Ashley Connor. Thank you so much uh, for being with us. I just want to start off by asking how you came to this story, because it is, um, it's an unusual story to tell, and I'm interested in uh, how, how you came to it, what um, drew you to the project, and how it all sort of began. Um, well, the, I guess what kind of happened is my, the script came to me through my agents, and I think it came from Mike, the writer, and Peter was already attached to the project, so they sent it to me, and uh, I think my agents were kind of like, we know you're looking for something weird. <laughs> and I, cause I was looking for something a little bit weird and that was, it's really hard to find something that's different. And like, it's just fun to do things that are not, uh, that you can get weird with. And they were like, it's a little bit small, but we, you know, we just know you're gonna like it. So you can read it, but we're not really saying you should do it. <laughs> They're like, it's a good script. And I read Mike's script and you know, once I heard Peter was attached to it already, I'm such a huge fan of his since the station agent. And I just thought this is such a cool opportunity to see, for me to just see him be a leading man again. And you know, he is like really incredible human. Um, and then I, you know, read Mike's script, and I just thought it's a very, very weird voice. And I love that. Probably the things about it that would drive some people crazy are the things, the very things I loved about it. Because I read so many scripts and I watch so many movies, and I almost always know what's going to happen. And for me, it was a pleasure to do something that broke all the conventions. It broke the three-act structure, and it and it breaks all the tropes of a typical post-apocalyptic story. And I was like, we never really find out why the apocalypse happened. And so that's why there's like a really loud noise at the beginning of the movie, because it, it's actually a bowling ball. But we thought it would be that my editor, Madeline, and I thought maybe that's the apocalypse. Um, but, you know, we never had those questions answered, but I realized the story is not really about that. The story is about human, you know, human connection. So it felt like it's, it's, a it's essentially a relationship movie set against a very weird scenario. And to be quite honest with you, I don't think it's the things that happen in the film are so far off from 
how crazy things are in our world right now. And I just thought there was a lot of, my script was very like light and maybe a little bit more comedic than where I took it. But I think I just saw all this really deep, profound, all these messages in there that I think Mike intended and, you know. Yeah, and I think um, a lot of that comes across in the way you film it, in the way that you, um, the, the sort of nonverbal aspects of the narration, but just in the very distinctive and kind of uncanny uh, lighting and use of racking focus. And, and that's something that, uh, as both the director of the film and the cinematographer of the film, I'm interested in what your relationship to the visual quality was and how that um, was something that you used to shape the way the story was told and the, the elements of the story that were sort of prioritized in your telling? Um, well, I mean, I think, I didn't, I mean, I, I thought a lot about the lenses and how it would be lit in the sense that I was trying to present myself with certain parameters that I wouldn't light night scenes with anything that, I was trying not to light anything with anything he wouldn't have access to in the apocalypse. So, um, you know, even the scene at night when she goes outside to, which she's in the rain and gets into the car and she's going to leave, that was lit only by car headlights, the headlamp, a lantern. And I snuck in because my car that she was in, and that is my car, is really, the headlights were really, really low. I had to use two Lico's to amp them up. That's literally that whole ex wide night exterior is lit with because I was just like, I'm so tired of seeing uh, movies that are, it's nighttime and you can see everything. And I just think if you're in the apocalypse, there's no lights. So that's why it's really dark. But also it was like, as a cinematographer, that was like my dream always to do a movie and make it and not give a shit about Phil Light and like, you know, the scene where she's sleeping on the couch and he brings her water, that's lit all by practicals. I mean, the light on her face is coming from a napkin that I placed in front of her headlamp that's bouncing light onto her. So all the, the day scenes had different roles. So the day scenes, I actually used film lights outside the windows to illuminate. But, but as far as like the way that the movie is shot, it just kind of came out of, that's why I like sometimes shooting things myself because I don't have to think about it. I just go where I want to go with the camera. Where And I knew, one thing I knew for sure was that I wanted to tell the story. I wanted to tell the story as much as possible from uh, Dell's perspective. And so the camera is never you probably notice you don't really see his size in relationship to the world except for like three times in the movie. And I just think it's the way I, the way I shot him was sort of like, I wanted to shoot him the way that I see him. And uh, I'm also uh, find that the sound to be an interesting element in the film, because it's a very visual film and a very distinctive visual style that you have. Uh, but also, there's great care taken in the sound, and it's something that, um, I mean, I, I think especially seeing it in a theater really comes across, the, the range of, of levels and intensities and textures and um, the ways in which you sort of come at different levels of intimacy through the sound. And I wonder if how that 
how you thought of that in relation to the, the visual um, well, since I moved into this other area, directing and not, and, and I'm, I'm only really shooting my own stuff from time to time, um, I realize now, when I was a DP, I used to come to screenings and I would tech check it. I didn't care about really anything, I just cared about how it looked. And when I come to screen a movie that I've directed, it's like all I care about is the sound. I mean, to be honest, now with DCPs, you don't really have to worry about the way it looks anymore. It just is what it is. So it's not as many variables when I was DPing and things were like actually projected, but on film. But um, the sound is, of, I think, because I was doing visuals for so long, it was like this gold mine of opportunity that I never had access to before. And I think I'm very in tune with sound. And uh, I think it's, in, you know, an underutilized aspect of storytelling, and it's a way to get into people's heads. And I never, I don't always know when I'm gonna do that when I'm shooting a movie. I maybe have my hunches and I know better now, but it's, uh, you know, we had 37 tracks of sound in our Avid mix alone. That's before we go in and mix it with the sound designer. So that's how Madeline, my editor, and I work. We're very into sound and like, you know, the projection scene and all those layers and pulling lines from the movie that the, that's on the screen and all these things are trying to send subliminal messages to the audience. And, you know, in the scene where she's looking at all the photographs and the voices and everything, those are like all people I know and it's it's kind of a way, I think, to tell, just to take the storytelling to a more heightened place. And um, musically, it, I just think also if you're in the apocalypse, like in particular in regards to this story, he, he's, you're very, every sound would mean so much to you because you, it would probably be to some that it's very loud because every little sound you would hear it. And then I thought sometimes to me it might be very quiet. And so whenever there was a real sound that would sound sort of normal to us, it would just like cut through everything super loudly. And so that's sort of the story reason of why it's kind of um, erratic. And it's also mental, their mental states and all those kinds of things. Yeah, I think it, you, it comes across really beautifully as a way to get into Dell's subjectivity in particular and the way that um, aloneness feels versus the intrusion of another person. And that's uh, one of the things that I think is unusual about this movie is the sort of um, way that, that it captures what it's like to go from being alone to being with people and to, you know, determine whether you need people. Yeah. <laughs> um, but I'm, all, I'm interested in... Uh, the fact that you, coming back to the the fact that's so interesting to me that you both directed this film and DP'd it, and you, I believe you got your start primarily as a DP and have, um, you know, now I know you mentioned that you're working on a, a, a project that you're directing that you are not the DP for, and I wonder what has your experience been of the relation between those roles and the, um, different challenges that are on, that come with taking on both roles at the same time uh, versus being uh, in collaboration with a director or with a DP? 
Well, um, <clears throat> I mean, the, the project I just finished shooting is like this one's tiny in, compar in comparison, and the other one has like, you know, we had like probably like 50 people in our crew on this, and that one has 400. And so it's a very different movie spanning over several con continents. And so it's uh, nice to have my DP, who's Sean Bobbitt, on that movie. Um, it does, there are moments, of course, where I'm like, I just wish I was doing it, but uh, what's great about the job that I have now is I can work with other DPs, and DPs are my favorite people. And so, but I also love shooting, and I love operating the camera, and I operated the camera on this, and I've also operated the camera on the movie I'm doing with Sean, too, from time to time. And we have a really close relationship now, and um, what I like about I would say that doing both jobs on this was was probably way easier than having someone else do it because I know exactly what I want and I only had 24 days to shoot it and I had to be really fast and like all the magic hour scenes we shot at real magic hour and um, you know my I have uh, my B camera op is uh, my Keith Code who is a st my steady cam guy also and he did Handmaid's Tale with me and he just knows what I like and so he there are a bunch of scenes we had to get at a certain, you know, at Magic Hour, and he's the only other person I trust, and so he would shoot, you know, one camera on Ellen, I'd shoot one camera on Pete with her at dinner or whatever in the library, and I would have like a seven-inch monitor right next to me, so while I was operating the camera and watching Pete, I was, I had my left eye open and I was watching Elle's performance because we had all these small windows of time, but they're just like things that I could do that like I can't control another, DP, you know, and that's also the exciting thing about working with another DP is like, okay, oh, he's gonna he's gonna do that with that, okay, all right, and I just bite my tongue because I'm a DP, so I know what DPs want to be treated like. So I might be the best director for a DP to work for, to be honest, because I am ultra respectful, um, but I also still want what I want. And I think what's nice about what was nice about this experience was that I could do whatever I wanted, nobody, I had, didn't have to negotiate anything. It was just like, I just did it, and I didn't have to think about it. And, and if you have um, a camera that's very intuitive, like a handheld camera that's trying to tell a story, it's oftentimes a lot easier for me. I now know more about how to sort of empower my operators to do what they want to do, but like it's easy, it's always been this way with me where it's easier for me to just hold the camera because I don't even know sometimes what I'm gonna do with it. And then I set it up for myself so I can do whatever, you know, I can allow the actors to be more free than maybe would be in another case. And then, but then at the same time having a combo, like with Colin and Sean, Colin who did Handmaid's Tale with me, it's like we create a new look that he wouldn't, we, he wouldn't do on his own and I wouldn't do on my own. And it's like a cool thing to have two DPs come up with a look together, you know? So it's. Both are kind of awesome, so. In, in terms of your trajectory of um, coming up as a DP and coming to directing um, within the industry, what has that, I mean, has that presented any challenges or idiosyncrasies um, that are um, good or bad or? Um, not really. I mean, I think it kind of, sometimes I'm like, oh, right as I was becoming it, right as I was really learning how to DP, I moved into 
uh, directing. So sometimes I'm like, oh, what could have, what would have been, you know? But I also, there's no question I was, I should be doing, I, for me, just not regardless of what anybody thinks of the movie, you may all hate it, but for me, for my own personal joy in life, and I urge everybody, if they're not already doing this, it doesn't really matter. It's just like whatever makes you happy. And what makes me happy is to go on these different like adventures. And I realized I don't want to put all of it in the hands of someone else. I want to look at a script and turn it in and take something that is maybe a familiar thing and, and try to reinterpret it in a different way or because I do see things in a different way. So it, the challenge only is only I didn't want to leave behind DPing and I realized that I don't have to. I can sometimes do it and sometimes not do it. So that's pretty much yeah, the, the best issue. of both worlds. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I'm going to throw it out to the audience. I'm sure there are questions out there. Um, so if you raise your hand, um, I can see you. There's one. What uh, camera did you shoot on? I uh, shot on the Alexa, actually Alexa Mini because we were shooting with um, these anamorphic lenses, these Lomos that you can't, the, the front barrel, it's boring. The front barrel spins basically, and then your matte box would just be spinning around. And so I didn't use matte box or filters like the entire movie. And, and uh, so I used the Alexa Mini because it has internal NDs and yeah. Was, uh, could you talk about some of the, um perspectives with, uh, sometimes there was a distortion to the image, and I wonder if you could talk about. That's just a, that's just um, one of the qualities of, of those lenses, and I was looking for, I tested a bunch, tons of anamorphics before the film, and I was looking for exactly that effect and that quality, and it's just that, you know, some people don't, probably a lot of people shot with these lenses, but not, most people don't shoot with them wide open, because it's like torture for, the focus puller, uh, but I did so. But everyone who were every, anyone in my camera department who works with me knows that that's what they're in for. And like, like one of my one of my uh, ACs is in the audience right there. And so I'm kind of like, you know, I want to shoot wide open because when it's emotionally right and when you want to just totally focus on the central thing in the frame, the character or whatever. And that has a really nice sort of circular effect. It's almost kind of like like a lens, like a still, I was looking for like a still camera lens quality. Uh, there's a question. Um, do you have any now that you have done small and it sounds like you've just done big, do you envision moving sort of back and forth because when you do the small, it is easier to be able to both DP and direct and yet you have all the pluses of the big as well? Yeah, well, I mean, I think it's just going to be dependent on uh, what are the interesting stories to me and what I feel I could bring something new to. Because, like, you know, if there's a script, it's, it's really just about the script and it's about the characters. And if it's got well-developed characters or I feel like I can make the characters interesting or I can do something I haven't done before, one thing I do know is I've been, is every 
project that I've done so far like this has been a little, each one's been pretty different from the other. And um, the one, like the one I just finished is, it's basically like an action movie. It's like a psychological thriller, but like it was probably more of an, if someone else had directed the same script, it would probably be just like a straight up action movie. But it's a, it's a totally perspective driven, like in this one woman's perspective. And um, I just wanted to do it because I felt like I could bring, I could do something new with it because I like action movies too, but also it would be cool to see one where you can feel emotionally uh, invested as well. So I don't know if that answered the question. Yeah. Uh, there were a bunch of flags at the beginning and I noticed the Gabriel Garcia Marquez book. What was that in a relationship with the with the story at all? Is Wait, that, what was that the Gabriel Garcia Marquez book, The Times of Cholera? There's oh that. yeah, yeah, yeah. Was there any relation between, or was a specific reason why you chose that book, or it's just an accident? I, I chose that book because that was my favorite book that, and my mom introduced me to it. So sometimes I put little things into the. I mean, also just like the idea of like this, I mean, there's a other symbolism to it, but basically it's a book about unrequited love and I like to put little symbols in the movie. Um, I felt like in some ways that their story was almost about to become an unrequited love story and in the moment he discovers that book is the moment she's about to like possibly leave. Um, anyway, yeah. So um, since we're here at the female gaze, I feel like someone has to ask how you feel about like the image of a cinematographer and I guess what your advice would be for women trying to break into it. Well, I mean, I, I was just saying before that I, to, Patty, to Maddie, that I thought it's so great that they're doing this series. It's like, almost makes it seem totally normal because there's a bazillion films and they're all shot by women. And when I first started out, I didn't really know that it wasn't, like it was weird for a woman to, I didn't know until I really got out of school because there were so few people that wanted to be cinematographers anyway when I went to NYU. So like, you know, there was maybe a few more guys, but there was still a few girls. And uh, I think this time period, like this generation is very, um, to them, it's a very normal concept. I think it's an antiquated perspective that it, only men can do it. And women, I think because they've been for a very long time still photographers and very visual, um, I think it feels much more natural now than it did for a while there. And I think um, it's, the only advice I would say is just not to, for me, I think I just, ignorance was bliss. Like I never really, thought, okay, I can't get that job because I'm a woman. I just thought, like, admittedly, like, out, out of school when I was first trying to get paid work as a DP, I did dress, like, a little bit more uh, sort of androgynous so people wouldn't think I was girly, which is, like, it's not really a big secret, but I'm, like, very girly. But that doesn't mean I can't carry a 55-pound camera, and I can actually carry it longer than most of my male counterparts. So it's not about what 
you look like or what how people perceive you. It's about how you perceive yourself. Hey, so earlier you were talking about how as you were the DP in this film, you felt like the actors felt like they had more um, choices and control over it. So when you were directing them, how, how did that balance sort of in that relationship um, pan out as you were DPing them, making sure they look great visually, but also getting that raw performance from them? I think in order to do it, um, you have to be a good multitasker. You have to be able to like simultaneously, like a lot of times, and I did this on Meadowland, my first feature as well, but you kind of are, you're watching the light. Like it's about time management as well. And I don't put, I don't sit there and like noodle the lighting like I used to when I was just a DP. Cause it's like, that was my whole job. So of course I would second guess everything and like redo stuff. And as a director, it's like the moment it looks good. I'm just like, I just walk away, you know? And also you kind of, once you're, my actors know that I'm gonna DP the movie, it's like they're just hanging out on set with me and I might like be at the same time kind of watching what's happening with the, with the lighting, but I'm talking to them about the character and it's really about just being able to split your brain in, in two places. But for me, when people have asked me before, like, well, how do you feel about DP and directing at the same time? I had, I had actually asked my friend, uh, one of my friends who had done it, I asked him what he thought, and he was like, don't do it, it's terrible, it's the worst. He's like, I'll never do it again. And then I went and did it, because I just felt like, I don't know if I'm gonna feel that way. And the first day, I was like, oh my God, this is the worst idea ever. And then once I figured out like rhythmic, like how you manage your time, and also what was, you know, what I realized is the story is more important to me. But as I've evolved as a DP, the more important the story has become, Ironically, and the less like noodling I've done with the cinematography, ironically, I think for myself personally, it, my cinematography got better. Um, and also probably because I have the freedom to do what I want. I don't have to like try to please someone else. I'm just pleasing myself. And I think if you can do one of those jobs with your eyes closed, then you could probably do both of them really well together. If one of them is sort of just like a natural extension of your the way you do things, and that's how like camera operating camera and cinematography is for me, is like, you know, I might not be as amazing as like some DPs out there, but for me, just the what to get what I want, I don't have to think very hard about it. I barely put any thought into it at all. What I do all my prep beforehand. And then I really prepare my gaffer and my key grip about what I'm going to want to do. And then I just sort of do it. And if the plan doesn't work, I can think really fast on the fly. When we run out, you know, it's like if something's not working, I just make a quick change. But it's not impossible. Yeah. Um, you mentioned earlier that when you were approached with this project, Peter Dinklage is already approached to act. The other actors, did you... Did you have them in mind when you were working on this project? Did you go out to them or did they reach out to the project to be cast? So just wanted to know about that process. Um, it was just Pete. So, and Peter was already a producer on it. And so then basically the way that it worked for the rest of the process was Peter and I would sort of decide who, I mean, whenever I'm working with, a, when I have a, one main lead actor, I always kind of consult with them about who I'm gonna, who I, I wanna bring in. And so Pete and I put our heads together and 
Elle was who we thought of right away because we felt like Grace is a really tricky character and, you know, as written, she was written very annoying. Like, if you thought she was annoying in the movie, I'm sorry, but she was actually way more annoying on paper. And we were like, we cannot have, we need to have somebody who has this natural magical charm about her that you can't help but like her, you know? And that's Elle. And Elle is a magical person. And we just kind of were like, it's gotta be her. I just had a question about the color palette that I noticed throughout the film. Like a lot of blue with yellow and at the end a lot more red than I noticed. How were those decisions kind of influential in your storytelling? Or where did that come to be? Well, my um, a big part of like lighting for me is what you put in front of the lights. And so I'm, I'm very obsessed with curtains. And my production designer, Kelly McGeehy, who's amazing, uh, one of the things I do with my production designer and me and my costume designer is I put, uh, I make, I basically take a whole bunch of pictures that are colors I like, and then I give those colors to those departments and say, this is the only colors that are going to be in the movie. I did it on Meadowland, too. And um, it's sort of like an inspiration, and like also it gives the them, those creative people, this challenge. And... I don't know, I mean, I guess what uh, one of the things I'm very obsessed with are curtains. Sounds so boring. Um, <laughs> I have no life. So I make, I have an iCloud album that's just curtains, <laughs> like that I've seen in locations I take pictures of. And, uh, and then I say to like Kelly, like, let's get, let's get these curtains. Let's make these curtains. And they're usually like really weird curtains you can't find anywhere. But I just like the light the way the light comes through them. And so we ended up doing kind of, uh, you know, we scouted a lot of real people's houses and that's where a lot of that inspiration came from. And I think just the color palette was sort of, I wanted to have two stark differences. And then in his room, I didn't want it to be like all blue. I wanted there to be one mismatched curtain. And um, so anyway, Kelly made, you know, she made all those curtains and, and um, did the, the mismatch curtain, which was good, because otherwise that would have been too much of, it would have been like a superhero movie with the blue and the orange, you know, which it kind of, it's like a played out color palette, but I mean, I like it, and probably won't do, I didn't, I didn't do that on the next movie, we did something different, so, anyway. It's interesting, because um, so few characters, the production design really takes center stage and really is, maybe more noticed than it would be if there were more people populating the screen? Yeah, no, it's, it was very important. That's why I was having Kelly and her team were, was really amazing. And, and um, you know, we didn't have a lot of money on this movie, obviously, but that challenge that presented was we had to shoot in a lot of different houses. And so we were like, how are we going to dress all these houses? How are we going to, like, because normally you take a house, you take everything out of it, and then you put in it what you want. In our case, we went through like this crazy situation where we scouted a whole bunch of houses that just like look like they look like they everybody bought their stuff at Ethan Allen or Pottery Barn, and like maybe that's a nice house to live in, but it was not the houses I wanted to shoot in. And so I started to be like, like Kelly and I were like, just you have to tell these people. First of all, we have to find the neighborhoods that have these kinds of houses with character. And then when you say we're coming to look at the house for location, tell them not to clean up their house. So we wanted all the house for the most clutter. So long story short, the houses we shot in are um, 
a lot of the stuff that's in the houses were stuff that was actually in those houses, and we would mod, we made up those families based sometimes off of the real families, and then we, um, at, you know, Kelly would add stuff. So she did dress things, but it was just like a lot less. It was like a crazy job for art department. So, wow. Uh, I think we have time for one more question. I could keep going, but um, if there's anyone in the audience, yes, right there. Hi, Reed. I don't know if you can see me from here. It's Jendra. Hi, Jendra. Hi. <laughs> uh, fellow woman DP, for those of you uh, who were. Another, another, she's an amazing female DP, obviously female. You can tell. <laughs> Thank you very much. Um, my question is related to how you have embraced your, um, your role as a role model. And a lot of people uh, are very uncomfortable with that role. And I've been very impressed as your career success has grown and grown and grown, how, um, how you've recognized how important that is and how you've uh, given to the community. And um, I've seen a lot of people have little projects here and there, and then they crash and burn, and been really impressed with your trajectory of going up and up and up and up with every new opportunity. And I was wondering if you would share with the audience um, in keeping with your role model status. Um, what have you learned in all of these encounters that you've had with the success that you've had? How have you had to develop yourself as a person, as an artist, as a director, as a leader? And what do you wish that you knew before that you maybe have learned the hard way or the easy way or that other people would love, love to hear some advice from you? Uh, um, well, I mean, I know for a long time, I, when I was coming up, when I was starting out as a DP, I was too shy to go to my, my role models and ask and try to meet them and ask for help. And I kind of just was like, I'm going to do it on my own. That's it. You know? And... I've had a lot of people have come and worked with me that were kind of like, you know, they, they went after what they want, and I admire that a lot about these people, that they see someone that they're like, I admire what you do, and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to learn from you. And I just think that, that being proactive like that, I wish I had been more proactive like that, because there was a long, there was a lot of years where nothing happened, and I sometimes wonder why you know, if I had done things differently and I had, like, you know, not been afraid to ask for help. Um, because I do think you can learn a lot from others. Now that I'm, especially now I'm working with, like, work with other DPs or just working with other directors as a DP definitely informed me, like, moving into the directing role. And I think, um, you know, just being in this position now, I, I look at people who do come and ask for help and I'm like that's like cool that's good that you did that that's like cool that you did that and um like I don't know if I can help you but I try and like um I think you know we're just trying to learn as much as possible from others that's what I I probably could have learned a lot of stuff a lot more quickly but I did it like you just very organically, like I was the only person with a camera on earth. And so for a long time, I didn't like know how to do half the stuff. So anyway, I just saying like, that's a good way to go. And I think just as far as the aspect of being 
uh, in a role model position, I think you have to be the person that you want to would want to work for. And I know you've been through this, and you work for a lot of directors. And as a DP, you're in this position where you kind of get what you're going to get. And then you're the DP. You can't just quit every job if you suddenly you don't like the director you're working with. And so I always thought, even before I was a DP and I was a key grip, I thought. I had some bad experiences, and I thought, God, I'm just never gonna be, never gonna be that guy. And I'm always gonna appreciate how hard my crew works for me and how dedicated they are because I'm that person. And I think as long as you never, I think some directors have not worked in crew. That doesn't mean they're not appreciative. I've had those amazing directors who never worked in crew, but it helps if you've been there. Uh, you want to be the kind of person you would want to be your boss, you know, and like you want to be uh, the kind of person that you can like after you've done something. Be like, yeah, I did that the right way. I did. I didn't make a fool of myself. Like I wasn't a jerk. And you know, even with all that stress, I still. Everybody comes away from it feeling really good about them what they did, and and I guess just uh, I also in general, not just on set, but I think more about what I say. And I definitely have points, a point of view on certain things that I've had to sort of, you know, I keep some things to myself now because you, you, you know, you, you have to sort of watch what you say in, in public, you know, when a lot of people are listening to you. And um, there's some things you can, there's some things you might want to put out there, and then there's other things maybe just keep to yourself, you know? Um, I don't know if that answers it, but. I think that was a great note to end on. So thank you so much. Thank you. Long credits, thanks for sticking it out. Thank you for being here with us. Um, I, I have a lot of questions, um, but I will start with a s simple one. Um, I'm interested in how you became involved in the project, um, how your creative partnership with uh, Desiree Akhavan started, um, and sort of how uh, your role in the production developed. Well, Desiree and I had met at a film festival where she was playing um, Appropriate Behavior, and I had one of Josephine's movies, uh, I think it was Thou Wast Mild and Lovely, and she saw it and really liked it. So when she was gearing up, they asked me to kind of come in for it, and um, we had like a really good tea, and we talked about, you know, I had read the script, and we kind of saw eye to eye on the lack of uh, sexually forward queer stories for young women there were. And you know, this is ultimately, you know, I love seeing all ages here, but it's ultimately a teen movie and it's for teens and as well as can be enjoyed by everybody, but like that was kind of the goal that we set out to do. And um, a lot of it was, uh, we just, you know, we shared a lot of similar reference points, a lot of French cinema, you know, Skiama and 
Denis and you know talking about ways of like actually depicting female pleasure um, that people, especially in America, are afraid of. Um, so I think from like a theoretical standpoint, and we saw eye to eye. Uh, it's interesting you make the point that it is a movie for teens as well as about teens. Um, I think it, in a lot of ways, sort of epitomizes the, the coming of age story in that Cameron is, um, her skepticism really drives the story and her, um, she's having sort of these structures imposed on her by the authority figures in her life and she doesn't quite know at the start what she does and doesn't believe. And over the course of the film, you see her, you see how she develops beliefs and how she begins to um, define herself in opposition to authority. And I think that really comes across um, in part through the performances, but um, also in the way that those performances are filmed and the way that you frame uh, her reactions and, and people listening to each other. And I wondered if that, uh, how that factored into the, the sort of mission that you set about with. Yeah, well, the reality is is that this movie could be about any of those kids there. And so we wanted to really treat the entire disciple group with a lot of respect. And so they weren't just prop characters. It was really like all of these kids are dealing with horrific trauma and dealing with like a lot of self-hatred. And I think Mark is a good representation of kind of one aspect of that. And um, the realities of a lot of the gay conversion therapy camps. And you know, when I read the script, what I was really impressed by is like, I don't believe in God, but a lot of people do. And I thought that it was a pretty fair look at Christianity and it didn't damn the people who believed in God. It was pretty like across the board okay. And the other thing I responded to was that Cameron doesn't really, she doesn't really, she's confused by the reaction to her sexuality, but she, from the start to the finish, she never kind of goes back on it. She's always pretty gay. And I uh, appreciated that because I think, you know, we do see the story of, you know, a kid committing suicide all the time. And it felt very important to see a girl who was confident in herself. She just had all these external forces beating down on her. And so she questions it through those, but not really internally. And that felt like an important turn of the page for kind of the kinds of stories that we tell. I guess. Um, it's the way the film is shot is really attentive to the bodies of the actors and both in the sense of um, um, showing, both showing, um, you know, young adults exploring their bodies, but also just the ways that sort of psychology comes across physically and, and the things people do with their hands and their um, hair and um, in in a lot of ways it's a very intimate way of shooting and I wondered um, just on that note what your process was like and your relationship with the actors and and sort of the the feeling on set of how how that was created. I think Desiree specifically is a director who is like 
incredibly attuned to actors' needs and desires, and she is somebody who sits on set and really listens. She's not, you know, for her, the image is secondary to performance, and so this movie is not flashy. It's not, you know, we're not doing steady cam. we're not really doing dolly. It's like very kind of, you're really observing faces a lot. And so that was kind of at the heart of all of our discussions. It's like, how do you build empathy through showing the experience of the group? And I think, you know, for me, it's about the nuance of their performances. And so, you know, we would have a structure and then there would kind of be like an exploration null aspect to it. And for me, it is about like, how they respond internally. And it is about the small details, especially because these kids are so terrified to like speak their mind. So you really have to read body language in a completely different way. Um, yeah. Uh, and in terms of, um, I think the whole, the feeling of the film is informed a lot by its look also and the production design, and the, which is very much, it's very, a period piece, but it's in a subtle way. And it's um, also, you know, most of it is set in this sort of bucolic, natural setting. And I was wondering um, what your relationship to the physical environment was when you were filming. And, and the lighting is very distinctive, and it's uh, it really sort of coheres. Um, and I wondered what your thoughts were on that. Uh, this place is in upstate New York. It's called Riedel Bowers, and the entire cast and crew live there together. So we'd like live there, and then somebody would move out of a room, and Marcus Kirshner, the production designer, would like dress it. And it was a very intimate environment to make a film because, you know, most film sets get described as being like a family, but this was like actually two people to a room hanging out 24-7. It happened during the election, which I think was like another, you know, redefined our focus for the film because obviously it was traumatic for everybody, I'm assuming. Um, <laughs> but, you know, we were in a, an area of the Catskills where there's like homemade signs that say like, burn the witch. And uh, like, it was really Trump territory and you know we kind of all woke up the next morning we had like a 5 a.m call and everyone's crying and it's awful and Desiree like she's a goddess sent from like planet somewhere but she like got up in front of everybody and gave this incredible speech that really just inspired the entire group to like we had to shoot the scene where she sings uh four non-blondes that day, so it'd be like we'd sing, or everybody would like do this happy take, and then everyone would be crying <laughs> on the off. Um, but yeah, I mean, it's just a film. I think that also plays into it. It was like we all went through this experience together while making the film, and that, you know, Pence kind of believes in this. It's only, I'm gonna get facts wrong because I'm not a great memorizer. Um, but I think it's like only 15 states have outlawed camps like this even now. So while we were making the film, it just kind of redefined the focus that this was set in 93, but really we kind of wanted it to lose space to a certain degree. Like it's anywhere USA, I mean, East Coast-ish. But um, 
anywhere and could be any time because this is still happening. Well, I'm going to turn it over to the audience. I'm sure there are questions. Um, we have a mic going around. Um, so let's see. Here's one right there. Uh, how you doing? Beautiful work. Uh, you were saying that uh, you, you, I think some of your inspiration was some of French cinema uh, you, you, the director, was talking about. And what other inspiration or photographers or photography that you're looking at? Because some of the stuff I noticed that the framing was centered, and then also some close focus and also some slight zoom. So just trying to figure out what were some of the technical aspects, lenses and camera and stuff like that, and also some of your inspiration. Um, we shot on the Cook Pancros. It's been a while, but I believe that that's it, um, which is kind of a softer lens vintage package. And we just knew that we wanted, you know, so much about the face. And that was, like, portraiture was very influential. Um, what exactly? Like, film references? I can't even remember, and I want to be like Prince and say only, you know, we only looked at ourselves for this, but I can't remember. Um, but yeah, a lot of, we just knew that it needed to be intimate, and it can, and you know, the film gets fun to a certain degree, and it's fun that people think it's a comedy in part, especially because Desiree's kind of a comedic director, but at the end it had to carry like a, a weight to it that it never gets that fun, and it never gets that free, and it never gets that colorful. It's just the f what Desiree really wanted to get across is like, it doesn't end here. They get into that truck, but like, you know, the kind of trauma that these camps leave you with lasts for a very long time, so. Did that final shot, um, was it meant to evoke the graduate, the end of the graduate? Bingo. <laughs> it's like The Graduate, and I think our other reference was Texas Chainsaw Massacre. So. Yeah. It's a great shot. How did you, uh, how, technically, how did that shot come about? Oh, man. I wish my key grip were here, but I don't think he is. But God bless him. He, we were in a truck, and he basically, like, strapped me in with a ratchet strap. It's, very, it's a very low budget movie and don't tell the union. I don't know, it's not union, but um, you know, they like strapped me in and he was kind of hugging me during it and it was so cold. And we just kind of did it. Like Desiree knew towards the end of the film that the takes had to be longer and far more calculated. And so it was really trying to get that shot in a wonder and like the lights going away. We're all shaking. We'd have to reset every single time. It was very intense. And then, like, the dude on the motorcycle, it's like he'd pop the wheelie and sometimes it wouldn't look great. So it was really just a magical instance. Um, but, yeah, Sean Gradwell, thank you for locking me down. Uh, let's see. I see one question right in the middle there. Um, so you mentioned earlier that you had met the director, Desiree, through um, like a film fest. Do you have any recommendations for just like meeting and uh, other like female filmmakers? For being a film female? For, uh, for meeting other female filmmakers? The internet is a great resource. Yeah. Um, <laughs> cool. You know, 
How did I get going? Um, I sh when I first started shooting, I shot pretty much everything. And I think in New York especially, um, there's such a strong independent film community that like if you start hanging out, and by hanging out I don't just mean like going to parties, I mean you go to the screenings, you go to Lincoln Center, you go to Metrograph, you go to IFC, you go to all these places to see films. Well, um, <laughs> good yawn. Um, you know, you go to these places and you start meeting people and for me, you know, finding long-term collaborators has been a strange and abstract process, but I think ultimately finding, you know, when you're starting out, you're never going to like, especially as a woman, uh, like no older dude is gonna come up to you and be like, you, come, we trust you. Yeah. You know, I'm at a certain age where they still are like, how old are you? And you know, there's still this questioning of uh, being a woman in the workplace. Um, but that's why you build your community with your peers and kind of come up together. And as long as you're making work that feels of yourself, um, I think eventually, you know, it might seem like you're creating it in a container, but eventually it'll break out, I guess. Awesome, thank you so much. Um, you mentioned that you are still kind of early on in your career. Um, how do you feel like since beginning to study film in college and to this point that you're sort of perception of what it means to be a cinematographer and how you perceive your job has changed or grown? Hmm. 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 Um, you know, when, when I was young, I shot a lot of movies for like literally no money. Uh, Josephine's first two movies were made for zero dollars, essentially. I think there's a budget for food and for post. Um, and as I've kind of grown, obviously like gear gets bigger, budgets get bigger, crews get bigger, but I'm also able to kind of, at this point, you know, I'm not like a commercial DP and because uh, I have a lot of problems with capitalism, but um, <laughs> you know, I, so I tend to shoot more movies and um, I think this is the first year, like I'm not shooting a movie this year. Um, I'm doing the final season of Broad City. Uh, um, but I think that that's been an adjustment is being capable of saying no to things and refining my own personal tastes. And that happens to be, you know, one thing we didn't talk about in this panel of like the female gaze and all this stuff is there's this uh, reality now where, um, men want to make films that uh, I think mistreat women and their way around that is to hire a female DP um, and it sort of covers up their inherent misogyny and this year I was like, I'm not fucking here for it. Like, uh, and so I just took a step back and I was like, oh, you know, I'd shot a movie that Abby was in and they kind of approached me and I was like, oh, a show about female friendship and like loving each other and holding each other up and it's fun and comedic, like great, sign me up. So I'll be back next year, I guess with movies, but this year I'm out. <laughs>
One of the things that I thought was cool about this is, you know, not only is it directed by a woman, the DP is a woman, the editor is also a woman, and the screenplay is, is written by, co-written by a woman. Mm -hmm. So when you look back at the other films that have come out about queer women in the last few years, um, first there was Blue is the Warmest Color. Blah. Yeah. Direct, directed by a man. And the, screen, the screenplay was by a woman, but directed by a man, yeah. um, shot by a man. Then Carol, directed by a man, shot by a man. Um, and then Disobedience just came out, directed by a man, shot, shot by, by a man. man. Yeah. So did it, when you guys were planning in pre-production for this film, um, did you know that uh, the editor was gonna also be a woman? Did yeah. You, and did that play into between the three of you, um, talking about how things were planned? Um, and did that, I don't know, did having um, that core team of all women help in the discussions and how you spoke about the film? Well, I think for me, you know, when I get approached by a project and they're like, it's an all-female crew, I equally cringe because I tell them I don't believe equality or progress is based around negating gender or like negating the other gender or anything in between. And for me, that's really important. It's important for me to be on a set that men are on to see that these positions can be occupied by anyone. And while, you know, the difficulty of a series like this is, which we saw yesterday, is women don't, especially female DPs, don't want to be defined by our gender. And as we move towards like, you know, getting rid of the binary, um, it becomes complicated to define ourselves by that. But I also left the panel yesterday because these are like my hero women, you know, Agnes Goddard is like my fucking hero. And they did not want to talk about being a woman. But for me, visibility really matters, especially to young women. And, um, you know, when, when I was coming up, it's like there were only a handful of female DPs to look at. And so that's why a series like this and why Maddie and Tyler and Florence are so important to bring this narrative to the forefront. And um, so I think that the discussion, and you know, Marcus, the production designer, is the most fabulous gay man you will ever meet. Um, but it was really never in the conversation. It was never like, we're making like women for women. It was really just Desiree hired the best people who she wanted for the job. And we all just mainly happened to be women. That's, uh, that speaks a little bit to something that I, I'm interested in. Um, this question that's come up all weekend about what the female gaze means and um, whether the uh, uh, work by a woman cinematographer is different than work by a man cinematographer. And I'd, uh, I'm interested in whether you have a sense that working on a set like this that was so, so much of the um, sort of vision came from women in, in these high positions, was that influenced by the, do you think the experiences of these women in the industry and in the world of making films and maybe that, did that sort of come into play, bringing these experiences together? Yeah, I think, you know, something I like to talk about with directors is like, what don't you like about these movies? So, you know, when we talk about Blue is the Warmest Color, which there's fantastic parts of that movie, but I take issue with some of the sex scenes. It's like, you know, who lights 
40 candles and has like the brightest fucking light on and then your first time you're like scissoring and doing all this crazy stuff like that's not how it went for me but um but i i you know so we talked a lot about that so it is about you know a lot of the conversations were like pinpointing cinematic moments that we thought were not truthful and ways of refining that. And so it does have, have to do with being a woman in that regard, where it was like, you know, we had a lot of conversations about like our first sexual encounters and what those were and how awkward they are and how fun they are and like how you can never go back there, but you can try. And um, yes, so being a woman in this regard, yeah, I mean, it's so complicated especially because I know for the women who are at least on the panel and have been here, you've worked so hard to be seen as an equal and then um, to kind of feel like, I think um, Chantal Ackerman would say, like asked if she made feminist films and she was like, uh, like, no, I'm just a woman who makes films, um, but obviously she's making feminist films. Um, and so there's this attitude that like we don't want to name the thing that it is, but um, I think this film couldn't have been made by men, and that feels important and empowering to say, and like not negating that men can't make great movies. It's just saying this feels of a particular um, sensibility. I think we only have time for one more question, but I do see a hand right there in the middle. You in the back? Or wait, oh, never mind. <laughs> the microphone. Um, you kind of touched on it in the last question, but um, I noticed that, like, oh, sorry. All of the um, sex scenes and all, also the scene where she's um, on the phone with her aunt in the cupboard, Mm -hmm. um, they're all like shot in the dark pretty much like you can't really see her face and um, I guess you I mean you already mentioned it but I was like wondering if that was uh, on purpose like you don't really see her her face um, it was on purpose Desiree you know at least for the nighttime shots in the bedroom she really uh, rallied against um, having extra light. <laughs> so it was like every single time I lit it, it was like, no, take it away, take it away. Like this doesn't feel like a room at night. And I think, you know, I think watching it now, there's an inherent desire to see more that you're not capable of seeing, which feels uh, a part of the scene and uh, inextricable to the experience is that you want to know more but you can't see and um yeah these were you know and then for her under the desk it was very much like you know visual metaphor she's in the dark um but but yeah um yeah, so the nighttime scenes Desiree was just like I fucking hate watching movies where there's some like bright light on them and you know it never feels like it does at night it never feels like mysterious 
And so that was kind of the impetus for those. It was like, you can edge them out, but it's very like mysterious and dark. And I think the desire to see more plays into the overall desire. I think talking about the desire to see more is a great place to end. So <laughs> thank you. Thank you, Ashley. The Close-Up from the Film Society of Lincoln Center is produced by Michael Odemark. Our opening music is by Steelism. You can subscribe to The Close-Up on iTunes and Stitcher. The Film Society of Lincoln Center is a nonprofit arts organization based in New York City, supported by individuals just like you. Founded in 1969 to celebrate American and international cinema, the Film Society presents year-round programming recognizing established and emerging filmmakers, supporting important new work, and enhancing awareness, accessibility, and understanding of the moving image. To learn more about what we do and support the Film Society by becoming a member, visit filmlink.org, F-I-L-M-L-A-N-C.org. The Film Society of Lincoln Center. Film lives here.